0: Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything foreign policy has to offer.
1: Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world-leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Camus and Kafka have both been central to 20th century writing and thought. Both wrote about the relationship of the individual to society, but had very different visions. So who got it right? Should we follow Camus and see freedom and the ability to change the world as essential to the human condition? Or is this an illusion? Should we instead recognise that we are limited by culture, upbringing and organisation, so that there is no room left for the lone individual to alter and change the character of society, or even the course of their own lives? Joining us to debate the individual in society are performance artist Emma Salkovich Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Andrea Elliott and Pulitzer Prize-winning poet and professor Paul Muldoon. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit our website, ii.tv, for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. I now hand you over to our host for this debate, Jane Teller.
2: I'm Jana Teller and I will lead you through the next hour in the debate of Kafka versus Camus. Um, Camus and Kafka have both been central to 20th century writing and thought. Both wrote about the relationship of the individual to society, but they had very different visions. Camus saw the individual as having the power to change and influence society, while Kafka honed in on the limitations of the individual to change anything and the power of the state and social organization. So who got it right? Should we follow Camus and see freedom and the ability to change the world as essential to the human condition? Or is this an illusion and should we instead recognise that we are limited by culture, upbringing and organisation so that there is no room left for the lone individual to alter and change the character of society or the course of their own lives? And now to our speakers. We have an absolutely eminent panel today, so I think we'll have a good conversation. Emma Salkovich is to my left. She's a performance artist, well known for her year-long performance art project, Mattress Performance, Carry That Weight, in which she carried a mattress everywhere she went, as long as she went to school with a classmate who had raped her. Um, On my right, I have a very distinguished journalist, Andrea Elliott, is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist who writes for the New York Times as an investigative reporter and is author of uh, the book, Invisible Child. And to the far left, an equally eminent uh, poet, we have Paul Muldoon, a Pulitzer Prize winner also. Paul Muldoon is one of the greatest poets alive today. Paul has served as both professor of poetry at Oxford University and the poetry editor of The New Yorker. Who was right about our our ability to change the world, Camus or Kafka?
3: All right, well, I'm going to give an answer in the middle. Whether or not they're correct, people say that I've changed the world. So, to give you an insider perspective on how I experienced such a thing, I'm going to read perhaps the strangest excerpt from the diary I kept during mattress performance, Carry That Weight. I wrote this entry after receiving the Feminist Majority Foundation's 2014 Woman of the Year Award. At the award ceremony, Gloria Steinem led a standing ovation for me. A woman told me that I was the Rosa Parks of my generation, and high schoolers lined up to have photos with me. I cried nonstop the entire time, and that night I wrote. I have trouble reconciling these heroic images of me with the way I see myself. I have always imagined a hero as a person who changes the course of history, as if history were water flowing down an aqueduct and all the people on earth were little specks pushed along by the current. This is a terrible metaphor, so please bear with me because now we have to imagine that one of these specks, the hero speck, has hands and is large, strong, and determined enough to fight against the current of history, grasp and lift the entire apparatus of the aqueduct and reroute the flow of water. However, since the start of Mattress Performance, I have felt more caught by the current than ever before. I have no control over anything, and every day is like a line of falling dominoes. Even creating this artwork felt like something I was driven to do by a force stronger than myself. I wonder if a hero speck is, instead, a large and strangely shaped speck that gets lodged on a jagged, painful edge of the, aqu- of the aqueduct, and for a moment, while it's stuck there, watching history float by, it begins to understand society and humanity because it has a better view from the sidelines. It naturally diverts the current, for all of society must pass and flow around it to continue on its course down the aqueduct of history. Maybe the hero speck will leave some of itself behind lodged in this moment of time, or maybe it will entirely dislodge and continue along with the rest of society soon to be forgotten. So, that was the weird excerpt. When it comes to sexual violence on college campuses, society was ready to change. I was merely receptive enough to be the vessel through which that change happened.
2: Um, thank you, Emma. And Paul, what do you say? Who was right about our ability to change the world? Can we Kafka, over to you.
4: Thank you so much. You know, I have to believe that the individual has it within them to change things. And I have to believe it partly, perhaps largely, because I try to write poems. And I, I believe that each poem that we write has it within it to change things. Now, by way of example, I'm going to read a couple of poems. They're not by me. You'll be glad to hear. One of them is a, it's a, a poem I read years ago. It's called The Pearl Fishers. The Pearl Fishers. The oyster is their world. That's it. You know, it has the, it, it has the, uh, the virtue of being short, which is one of the great virtues, of, of poetry in general. The next one is by a school kid in County Armagh. And it's from a poetry competition which I judged probably 40 years ago. And this was the winning poem. It's called The Tortoise. Are you ready? The tortoise goes movie, movie. That's M-O-V-E-Y, M-O-V-E-Y, right? So I work on the principle, and I hope you might come along with our side of this fierce debate, that <laughs> you will never look again at a, an oyster, a pearl, a pearl fisher, or a tortoise in exactly the same way. That, that, is, an, that is the change. It may be minor in terms of world events, right? It's not a cure for cancer, but it is a significant change. The person who wrote that poem was probably nine years of age. His teacher came up to me afterwards and said, how could you possibly give first prize to that poem? That kid can barely read or write. And by the way, she said, there is no such word as moving. <laughs> M-O-V-E. Why? I said, fair enough. Well, actually, there is now. So I will move from that to another aspect of education, if I may, and the extent to which one person can shift things within an institution. I have taught for many years, 35 years, i come to the point where, in fact, at Princeton, uh, where, where I have been those years, they're looking me, at me and saying, really? Are you still here? But in any case, Along the way, a very uh, distinguished provost of the university, 1995 to 2001, was Jeremiah Ostreicher. He, he's an astrophysicist. He specializes in dark matter. Um, and he, uh, he was, as I say, a provost at Princeton, which, by the way, as some of you may know, as a private university, has a, an endowment of thirty-seven point seven billion. So, um, along the w- while he was provost, Jeremiah Ostreicher single-handedly has decided that uh, uh, he would institute a scheme whereby, if one got into Princeton, one would never have to take out a loan. If you got in and you were able to pay, you paid. If not, the university would pay for you. That was something that a single person did, which has revolutionized that university and something we need to see right through the world.
2: Thank you. So, And Andrea, will take over here. Yes. So to speak to the question of who was right,
5: I'm going to offer a very literal response, um, which is that both were right, both were right. And to understand why, you have to ask yourself, who are you? Who are you? If you are Gregor Samsa, the traveling businessman in Kafka's metamorphosis, who suddenly wakes up one day to find himself in the body of an insect, unable to speak, unable to be heard. Or in his more modern iteration, if you are, right now, an African-American man named Supreme Doherty, who has spent all of his childhoods going from institution to institution, whose family I spent 10 years following through homeless systems and other systems, who never feels seen because of the color of his skin and who doesn't feel heard. Either way, this is a person who has no sense of hope, because of the repetition of futility and giving up all sense of control to forces that are beyond his control. If you are Raymond Rambert, the journalist in the plague by Camus, who gets trapped in the uh, Algerian city of Iran and wants to escape because he really misses his love in Paris and doesn't really want to get stuck in the plague. tries to escape, tries to escape, until finally he has a revelation that he should in fact stay, that he has a duty to the greater good. Or in a more modern iteration, just a journalist today who has the choice, who lives, who dwells in the land of choice. I could stay and do this story, or I can go somebody, somewhere else, I can see beyond my circumstances. I would argue that then you do have a moral imperative because you can see the Kafka's among you And you can see the institutional reasons for their futility, and therefore you are called upon to do something about it. But it is not to negate that futility until you've lived it. Thank you.
2: Okay. So now, after this interesting introduction, we go into the first theme. So I'll start with you, Emma. Should we follow Camus and see freedom and the ability to change the world as essential to the human condition? And you have it as a personal experience. If you could not have changed the situation, would it have been different? And how do you see it in more general terms? Is it a basic for the human condition? If I could have not changed
3: the situation. Sorry, did you say that last sentence? i just say,
2: if you could have not changed the situation you were in, Would that have changed the fundamental of the human condition for you? And how do you see that in more general terms? Is it an essential element of the human condition that we think we can change our condition?
3: Um, I guess, so when I hear your question, I think that actually I wasn't able to change my condition. Um, So a lot of people, come up to me and they hear about the work I did where I carried a mattress everywhere I went as long as I went to school with the classmate who assaulted me. And they're like, um, well, did it work? Did, did Columbia then kick him out? Did he then get put in jail? But the reason I made it was that Columbia had already decided to not do anything about it. And the police had already decided to not help, right? I, I was in a situation where I was like, okay, I'm completely powerless. But from that place of powerlessness, where can I find creativity, right? How can you work with powerlessness and actually end up not necessarily gaining power, I don't have any like grandiose visions of myself as this all-powerful being, but um, where's the room for play and creativity and can, can I produce something from here? Um, and I do think that ultimately if ch- if Productivity and the ability to create is a form of change. Um, it is a form of agency, right? The ability to have control over our situations. So, so, so I think sitting with the powerlessness was actually, and, and the and the fact that I couldn't change my situation was um, was actually where I was able to create something new.
2: Yes, yeah, so you found a new path in your human condition. Yeah. I want to move this on to you, Andrea. Um, through your work with, you can say, very disempowered uh, groups of people, um, how do you see this question that should we no, follow Camus and see the, um, freedom and the ability to change the world as essential for, I guess, human existence? Or if people can't change it, then what happens to their human existence, their sense of it? So I think that the response to that question is often um, a very
5: self-serving and lazy response. But the problems are overwhelming, they're too big, so therefore we throw up our hands. And I think that that's rooted in how we define change. It comes down to what is change? How do we interpret the, that word? If change means the eradication of poverty or the eradication of sexual assault on campus, then we're always gonna be (laughs) Sisyphus in a sense, right? right. But there are all kinds of ways in which change presents itself and manifests right, in the lives of people. One way that I would like to highlight is another person I wrote about named Faith Hester, African-American teacher in a school where there were shootings all the time. She was also the teacher of one of the children of the man I mentioned before, Supreme. She had gotten out of the projects, gotten two master's degrees, and then returned to her community to try to lead the way forward for other children who reminded her of her former childhood. And she kept seeing that they didn't expect to live beyond 21, because so many had been shot uh, in this school. And the um, violence is at an all-time high now in New York City. But this was gun violence, was gang-related stuff. And so she came up with an idea Her idea was, I'm gonna have you all write your obituary. It was a very controversial thing to do, to go into class, the parents freaked out, they said, what are you doing, this is not homework. These are sixth grade boys and girls, you need to write your obituary, but here's the only condition, is that you don't get to die until you're 70. How do you imagine your life was lived? And I asked her, why did you do this? And she said, because I wanted them to see that they are the authors of their lives just to imagine yourself for going forward in time to 70, which was unimaginable to them, got them thinking in new ways. Now, one of those children actually was shot dead several years later. Did it really change? In some ways, it's, it's a hard thing to measure, but I would argue that because change is such a hard thing to measure, we must believe in it.
2: Yeah, interesting. And Paula, I am only bring you in here. How do you see it? Because Evidently, that change at Princeton was very important for all the people who come into Princeton, but for all the others, how do you see change as essential to the human condition for them?
4: Well, I do think we have to believe. I've used this phrase um, a couple of times. I I certainly have to believe that change is possible. I have to believe it not, and I I have to believe it on behalf of my children. Mm apart from anything else. I have to believe that the world that they are growing up in um, and what assails them on every front, frankly, primarily, the state of the planet. That's the biggie, so far as I'm concerned. And I think that if we give up on, okay, we may know that eventually the sun is going to burn us up. But that's a bit down the road. And we want to make sure that while the sun is in waiting, that we actually do the very best we can. And, and we have to find ways uh, of of, ma- of making sure that global warming is brought down to a minimum. I have to believe that we're going to be able to do that. Uh, because if not, it's, it's just too horrendous to... Uh, to, oh, to, yeah. to imagine.
2: Right, and yeah, then we can all lie down and die tomorrow. We want to move on to, this, to the second scene, but it's a good lead straight into it. Because was Kafka right in recognizing that we are limited by culture, upbringing, organization, leaving us little room to act? So it's like the opposite side of this question. Mm. So I'll go straight on with you, Paul, and say, but that's finding countries that are more powerful. What if you're a peasant or fisherman on Samoa islands? and you see the water rise in a certain number of centimeters each year, and everyone moves into that little patch that is left. How much power do you have to change anything? And how do you live if you can't see the power? I mean, you become Kafka's K, and say, run around a castle where you can never get to the authority uh, that could change what you wish to change.
4: Well, I agree that if one is standing on on that island and watching the waters rising, and, and people do. I mean, and they do, <laughs> that's what of happens. course. happens. And they're doing their best to try to, 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 to make some difference. And it may not happen. It may not work out. But what I'm calling for is at least that we make an effort uh, to, to put things right. Um, and, uh, you know, we may know that at the end of the day, it's gonna be very difficult. We may even know it's, it might be impossible. But we cannot stop trying.
2: Trying, yeah. And I think that is a cue for Emma because trying is exactly what you do over that. You're carrying I mean you have to imagine Emma carrying a heavy mattress around the campus of Columbia every day. Not one day or a week, every day for a year. I mean that's quite a commitment to changing something that eventually you feel you couldn't change. But somewhere you change something else in that process. But I think Paul well, just want to. I was just going to say,
4: for example, I r- vividly remember Emma's um, um, protest. And I would like to, b- and I will never forget it any more than I will forget the tortoise. And I believe that the fact that you did that. Well, I, I would like very much to believe that somebody who might have thought of doing something inappropriate, who might have thought of uh, engaging in, a, in inappropriate uh, advances or sexual activity, might actually have thought, you know what? Maybe I shouldn't do that.
2: Yeah, so it's the, the side effect coming. Totally. But I want Emma to not, yeah, talk about how you see it for having done that in a way if you were in a situation where you couldn't go against directly the authority, you found your way, how you compare that to Kafka's line of thought, that you can't change it, you're in this situation, there are bigger authorities than you, and you, do, you chose to do something anyway. Would that always be your choice? Do you think everyone should choose that? Is there other ways you s- see what is necessary? So,
3: first of all, I think 100% we can all agree that we need to believe in change, right? Without that, I mean, on an emotional level, God, what a bleak world <laughs> we would live in. And and half of, like I think, philosophy is about defining how we want to move through world in a way that's going to make life manageable for us and inspiring for us. So I think, of course, let's agree, change is possible. And then I love the story you brought up about um, this this uh, This assignment that the teacher gave to kind of inspire uh, these children to understand how you can have agency in your life, um, because I think really the question that we're trying to get at is not whether or not change exists, it's about how do we make that happen, right? And I think. Ultimately, for me, I had to reframe that question for myself as not one of, okay, there are all these problems in the world and how can I change them? It was more about saying, how can I change what I'm doing, right? Um, Because at the end of the day, I don't have power over the New York Police Department or power over Columbia. Like I only have power. That really extends at you know to the limits of my skin and the reach of my words, right? So how can I change what I'm doing um, to make the best out of this, uh, for all intents and purposes, remarkably powerless situation I find myself in? And once you take control over this body and these words that we we are we've been gifted with, I think that's where we can. That's where change starts, right? And yes. And I'd love <laughs> to go. I'd love
2: Andrea, to can I just lead into it before you start talking, is to say you have worked here with people who are very you know, disempowered, and you tell the story of people wanting to you know, have some agency in their lives, but what if they really feel they have no agency? How do you see you know, them still creating a human condition they can live with?
5: Well, we have to ask ourselves, what is our relationship to change? And, um, but I want to go back to, for a moment, what you just said. How can I change them? What a great question. That's a question that is so often directed at the powerful. But we also direct that question at the powerless. Mm-hmm. And when we talk mm-hmm. about culture and how it, culture may or may not limit us, I think we are also often making assumptions about other people who seem trapped by virtue of not wanting to work rather than broader systemic issues that have forced them into a life that is so degrading nobody would choose it. Um, How can I change them is a question that is all too often directed at the poor without understanding what I would really summarize the way that uh, the American psychologist Abraham Maslow summarized it in the hierarchy of needs that he created that is often taught like a pyramid And at the bottom of the pyramid are things like food, shelter, water. You need those things to live, to survive. Only when you have those, whether it's the yurt over there or (laughs) the water we're drinking here, can you then graduate to the next level of the pyramid, which is where you begin to make relationships. You find love, you can uh, create a life for yourself. And at the top of the pyramid is self-actualization, is things like self-esteem. And those of us who are lucky to be at the top of that pyramid can see those at the bottom. Those at the bottom are so consumed with the crumbling bottom, with just the act of survival, which is until you've lived that life, until you've been inside what it means to survive as a poor, deeply poor person, day after day after day, you just have no concept of how much innovation, frankly, goes into that act alone and how exhausting it is and how impossible it is to see beyond that. Uh, To 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 elevate yourself to see forward into any other kind of future you are just surviving the moment the present So I think we have to think about how uh, we relate to change and how others how we impose our views on of change on others as well
2: Yeah, and the people you talk about compare I think to if I talk about the people living in Samoa right now Who feel you know every day some more meter or square meters of their land is taken away and they don't have the powers to change it. But do you then still think that people find the meaning of existence or within Absolutely. those confinements? It's yes. not all about changing to, the confinements. It would be v- are very patronizing to yeah. say
5: somebody is so stuck and mired in uh, whatever problem it is, let's say poverty, um, that, that that person has no ability to see beyond, they have no agency. I'm not saying that. There are all kinds of miracles playing out on the ground with poor people every day. Uh, miracles, acts of imagination, trying their best to survive. That's how we survive. The best example I have is Supreme again, uh, in a homeless shelter, gets kicked out with his family. They go to this bleak place, it's so Kafkaesque, where you're literally assigned a number. Uh, to be able to get back into the homeless shelter system of hundreds of shelters in New York City. And so the way he internalizes that is, it's the system, it's the way the system is, it's bleak, it's futile, forget it. But how does his child Dasani internalize it? That number becomes something she memorizes. And she stares at the screen waiting for it. And she thinks about all the things that number represents, her pet turtle, all the things that are stuck back in the room at the shelter they've been kicked out of love letters that are between her parents, uh, the mementos of our life, um, her favorite snack. So, you know, there are, I guess what I'm saying is, the the deeper inside you get in in anyone's struggle, you see aspects of Kafka and aspects of Camus, and it's
2: always always something of a mix, right? Yeah, Um, I mean, it is also paradoxical in some ways to put it up like this. If we think about Camus' uh, Sisyphus myth, You know, where you have Sisyphus pushing this big stone up the mountainside, and it's futile in the sense every time he gets near the top, it rolls down again. But somehow, Sisyphus manages to create some meaning of the process of doing it Um, And that would actually see more Kafkaesque, you know, that thought that you create meaning within also the boundaries that that you live within. Because I think it's a necessity for for most of us in in life at different levels. Uh, That's what what we have to do and change what we can change. Um, I want also to move on to the discussion. Can I respond to the last thing? Yes, absolutely.
3: I I think um, what's coming up for me listening to you is like, Cause I, yeah, I think I, I really agree. Like, this this imperative to change someone else is so misused, right? We 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 make people feel bad when they can't change people who are more powerful than us, and then we want to change people who are less powerful than us. Like, like there there's so much externalization of yes. the problem. And I wonder. And I'm you know prepared to be wrong or. Putting out a bad, like a you know, misusing a word, but it's just this word. Inspiration is coming up for me. I'm wondering if maybe a you know a way of envisioning change that's more, um, you know, that's that's less controlling would be how can we inspire people, right? Like how can we inspire institutions to change that even when they're more powerful than us, right? How can we inspire people who are less fortunate than us? Um, without pressuring them to do things that are not that they're not able to do, right? I wonder if inspiration also get the word inspiration also gets at the creative act, um, you because know, inspiration comes from creativity. Um,
2: yeah. yeah, I just want to pull in Paul in this is is it about inspiration to change or is it about having the structural conditions that you can actually make change?
4: Um, well, I think it's a bit of both, and, and in that case, of course, um, you know, I think, um, were we not in this particular context of having a debate, I would, uh, I would agree, that that both of these ideas obtain, and for example, the inspiration for uh, and uh, the inspiration for the poem about the pearl fishers or the poem about the tortoise. Is, is, is determined by something beyond the individual who wrote it. And that, that is at the heart of the notion of inspiration.
2: Just, we'll take it rather quickly, the last theme of our debate. Can we create a future in which we have greater control <laughs> over our lives? And I think, you know, Emma, you already spoke about, talking about the inspirations, about structures. How do you see it, Andrea? Um, is it possible to change the conditions so that we have greater, greater control to make the changes? I mean, I'm trying to think
5: of a way to ground that question in something very specific because it's so abstract. I think one, one thing probably every person in this room shares to a certain degree is a struggle with the need for greater control in some aspect of your life, whether it's your family or your work or your health. Um, and I think that is the contradiction that Camus so beautifully illustrates, is this, the, the, the contrast between the fact that we're all gonna die and our will to live and our excitement to create. And so um, I will just answer this on a very personal note, actually. Um, I lost my father in September he died unexpectedly two weeks before the book I had been working on for a decade came out. And two months to the day after he died, my brother died. And my brother died because he was a lifelong alcoholic and he had spiraled down after my father died. And a lot of people in response to this said, oh, you're gonna fall apart, You, this is too much. And I guess what I felt, and of course it's been a lot, uh, was to the, I, I had this need to say it's not too much because it is here we are, and we 're getting through it, and uh, it 's also a reminder that we control nothing and i had have really really woken up to that as a human being on this planet that uh, that control is the enemy, the need for control in a sense but what do, where does that leave us with social justice um, I, I have a different response to that so Anyway, I'll stop there. Yeah. No,
2: but this is interesting. Um, I think, again, Emma, you have shown how you can try to take control, but do you see beyond inspiration that it's possible to change our capacity for controlling our own lives?
3: Um, uh, You know, I'm I'm on board with you. I think, uh, like, I only was able to be creative once I gave up control once I realized, like, okay, there's nothing I can do to get Paul off campus, right, or whatever. Um, I think, take all my control from me. I don't need it. <laughs> like, yeah. I actually, like, also on a personal note, like, I don't, I love ha- I love being powerless. <laughs> <laughs> like, when someone else plans everything out for me, I'm like, all right, it makes it very easy. I mean, but but, like, I think... I think too many, you know, whatever. Everyone needs to live life and experience their own, you know, journey at their own pace. But for me personally, um, I, I, I don't, I don't see scrambling for control in any real way as um, something I aim for. <laughs> I think that like the the more I kind of accept um, and open myself up to the fact that I don't have control, the more I find room for creativity.
2: I think it was Milan Kondera who said something with everyone scrambles, to take control, but we have to realize only in death can we have full control. Mm -hmm. So how do you see that, Paul? Is it worth scrambling to try to gain some more control over our lives?
4: Well, what I was uh, heading towards earlier on is that the notion of inspiration does demand exactly what you're describing which is um, completely um, embracing a sense of powerlessness, to use that word, a sense of humility, of being open to, to that force beyond oneself. So when one does that, however, there is a possibility that some good will come from it that's essentially where I, that some good will come through the individual. And we have to do it individual by individual. We have to do it one bit at a time. (coughs) And, um, And some good, I think, will come from it. And if I may be so bold as to say. Be bold, Paul. I am pretty sure that if and when a situation like yours arises again at Columbia or indeed any other institution, they are going to think twice about how they respond to it. Yeah. And that is that is part of what we're talking about. We have to, you know, each time we... I was in Dublin Airport yesterday watching a woman quite um, religiously um, recycle. You know, she put her banana peel in the compost, there was a compost barrel, and dividing up everything the, the plastic bottle the paper now <coughs> we know that recycling is <coughs> is is, um, is having a huge problem at the moment globally in that china for various reasons including some quite good ones isn't isn't accepting our garbage anymore but um, you know the fact is that uh, that was a movement for example that And it started with one person's idea, I'm pretty sure. Recycling has been with us for a long time as a concept, but I'm pretty sure one person said, we've got to do this. And everybody piled in. You know, everyone really, um, miraculously accepted the notion that recycling was a good idea. So that's, that's the position I'm holding on this. One one bottle cap at a time. One but issue at a time.
2: I think there seems to be an agreement here on the panel. You can change certain things and what we can't change you accept then you find a way to to live with it and open What do we then do with the people who like to have control over others? The trumps of this world. There are a few of them. If the rest of us kind of sit back and say, okay, I'll be inspired to make my own smaller changes and do nice things. We leave the stage for the bigger changes to maybe become worse to those people. In a very brief sentence, could each of you have a comment on that? My only comment is I don't
5: think anyone on the stage is defending small change. I think we're uh, understanding that change can present itself in different forms and at different scales, um, but absolutely go for Broke when you want to be a, an agent of change. Uh, and then also know that you may not succeed. Th- that's
2: the tension. So you do counter the people who really want control uh, over the world in whichever way you can. I've never been good at ceding to authority
5: as a journalist. Just okay. I'm wired to rebel, yes. And right, okay, good.
2: We people. have a rebel here also. What do you say, <laughs> Emma, to this one? I love that. Yeah. I, and i
3: think i think it's all, it's also really awesome to be with with such creative panelists right like we're all creators we all make something out of nothing right <laughs> I think that's what we're we're all very special at um and and i think and I love the idea that like you can only do that when you're ready to take risks um do what follow what you're really interested in um follow your passion um and follow it recklessly. Like, uh, uh, you know, so, so yeah, I, I guess no, we're, we're all ready to do whatever we want,
2: <laughs> so, um, <laughs> but, but, but. We the, seem to yeah. agree with <laughs> that.
4: which is a bit of a problem. Yeah, <laughs> right.
2: but that's why I think we should, it was a good note to stop on that. Well, you can strive for change for groups and so, but it's also for the betterment of every individual because together then we are a group. Anybody wants to add something or we close it here? Thank you so much to Andrea (laughs) Tolmo and Emma Falkovic.
1: Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit our website iii.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers.